Amen. Have you ever been betrayed by a close friend? It's the most uh, shattering experience. A false friend can be compared to a shadow. As long as they, there is sunshine, the shadows stay close by. But the minute that you step into the shade, then the shadow disappears. And the shadow of night for us in the journey that we are taking through John has finally come. Through the story of, of John, we come in the dark night of betrayals. Time for some betrayals. We look uh, particularly in John 13, 21 to 30 as Judah's betrayal. And verse 36 to 38, even Peter's own betrayal. We're ready now by the passion narrative. Christ is already sitting to the table at the Last Supper with the 12 followers. However, some things are happening under the table. The theme of this betrayal had already been introduced to them past weeks. All the way to last time, you remember, Jesus washed the disciples' feet and he said, not all of you are clean. Speaking about Judas, the cleansing that we saw last time implies the removing of dirt and in this case, the removing of the unregenerate from the community. The traitor, Judas, has to be removed from the midst of the church. Judah becomes now a hindrance to the intimate ministry that Jesus has to move on with the true disciples. That is the necessity, once again, of uh, this regenerate being part even of the inner circle here of the eleven. That Judah's betrayal, which had already been alluded throughout the gospel, by the way. You go to chapter 6, we already saw in verse 70. One of you is a devil, said Jesus about Judas. One year earlier than this hour here. Jesus, therefore, was not surprised by the betrayal of Judas. In fact, he predicted it. He commanded Judas to go ahead here. Which means Jesus remains in charge of his own destiny. That there's no manipulation from the wicked, despite the ugliness and the impending doom. Nothing is outside God's control. Everything is on schedule. Evil, not even Satan, can act without the permission of God. That although the sin of Judah remained indeed treacherous, friends, he's not alleviated from any of his responsibility for his sin. God remains sovereign even over sin. Nothing catches God by surprise. God knew all about it. Even before Jesus chose Judas to be part of the twelve, he warned the other disciples multiple times. He allowed Judas to be washed in his feet last Sunday. He did not even stop Judas from going forth in his treachery here. Even the worst sin can accomplish God's ultimate purpose. That the ultimate good here, the ultimate purpose is that the Savior was betrayed for our salvation. That was, in fact, we could say that betrayal must be paid by the blood of the betrayer. And there's a sense in which our sin has brought upon our head the guilt of betrayal. And for our soul to be delivered, there must be a price. Someone has to pay the price. And that was why Jesus faced what he faced. He was betrayed for our betrayal. Even all the tools of betrayal here, you see a Judas Iscariot. You look at Herod, you look at Pilate, you look at all the Jews. They meant it for evil. But Christ 
and the Father meant it for good. I was reminded of Wesley's hymn about the second coming of Christ saying, Those who sat at naught and sold him, Christ, pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. Now John avoids also, notice before we go into the text, avoids recording the Lord's Supper. And so one wonders if this morsel of bread is given to Judas during the Lord's Supper, which would put the entire Satan entrance into Judas into a whole new light. However, it's clear from the other gospel, if you look at Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, that Judas is intentionally removed by Jesus before they actually take the Lord's Supper. In all the passages of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Lord's Supper follows the departure of Judas. And that, friends, is an all the more warning to the reason why in this church we, like we did last Sunday, the Lord's Supper is not meant for the unregenerate. Unbelievers must not partake the communion. Why? Some think it's not a big deal to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. I think about particularly the Church of Christ movement that in this area is predominant. That was one of the reasons Thomas Campbell, the founder of the Church of Christ, had uh, essentially a communion for everyone. But if you understand our text today, you see that for Jesus himself, this is a big deal. He has to remove Judas. None but believers are invited to the table. The inner circle alone is invited. And so if Judah partook these elements, but it betrays the realities of these elements through lack of repentance, then he, the, the Savior is grieved. And in fact, the, the blood of the Son of God is trampled underfoot. That was the case of Judas. And here in our text, we not, not only see Judas, but there's a, there's a parallel even in the believer. Judas is a reprobate. He's an unbeliever. And he betrays the master. But then there's also Peter, who is a believer, that betrays the master. And while the Judas, the reprobate, is guilty of an eternal betrayal, he doesn't find forgiveness, even the believer, like Peter, can fall in temporary betrayal. And the difference that we see in these betrayals this morning is that while, while Judas regrets, only Peter repents and he's then brought back through the intercession of Christ on his behalf. So let us look at Judas' treason, verse 21 to 30. That is the first part of our text. That is the betrayal of Judas. He has this treason that takes place under the table. It is time for Jesus now to reveal the darkest plot, even from the closest associate, Judas. Something that Jesus had already known about. He had allowed it, but he still dreads. He still dreads it. He disclosed this before the 12 in verse 21 to 22. He has washed the disciples of the, of the uh, feet. Everyone is sitting at the Last Supper, but Jesus is now again, once again, for the third time, troubled in spirit. He is in anguish and disturbed and visibly upset, thrown into confusion again. And why is the reason now? Because through his divine nature, Jesus can foresee what's about to happen. The fact that he will be arrested, flogged, and brought into a shameful death in less than a few hours away. However, in his human nature too, he was frightened by such prospect. How would you feel if you knew and this burden of the knowledge of Christ, mere human are not able to bear. 
Sometimes it's actually for our good that God doesn't show us the future. Sometimes it's also good that God doesn't show the, 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 the depth of the iniquity around us. Because we're not prepared. We will not be able to bear it. It will be shattering. But you see, our Savior, who is fully man, fully God, did bear this burden faithfully. Knowing all the terrible things that were coming, He embraced them as His own mission. And for our salvation. Even tolerating Judah's presence until now. He still, Judah still fulfilled the Father's plan. But the trouble, again, is in light of the people in the room. He testifies to the twelve, Most assuredly, one of you will betray me. Literally, one of you will hand me over. Which, by the way, that word comes from the traitor. The word traitor comes from the Latin, tradere, which means hand over. And in the early church, uh, professing Christians were handing over a copy of the Bible to the Roman persecutors in order to save and preserve their life. That's how we got the word traitor. And it's time for the Savior to let the disciples know about this traitor. Luke 22 verse 21 puts it this way. The hand of him who betrays me is with me at this table. At the table. What makes this betrayal doubly detestable is that Judas, for all this time, has been part of the inner circle. This is not a betrayal from an outsider. That would already have been a horrible thing. No, it's a betrayal from one who shares fellowship with the Savior. Sharing a meal in the, old, uh, uh, in, in the time of Israel meant that, that you are sharing fellowship. And Judas proves by his actions here, he has a false allegiance to Jesus. He was, a, you remember when there was the episode of the alabaster box, he got upset about that. He was sad for not being able to steal more money from the offering box. And then he goes to the chief priests and he asks them, what would you give me that I will deliver Jesus to you? And the chief priests are so glad to see him come and, and they offer him 30 pieces of silver. Which, by the way, was the price of a slave. That's how much Israel valued their true king. Judas accepts the money. He swears to help their treachery. He seeks for a while the best opportunity to betray at his convenience. Now the crowds are not anymore around. Now is the time to make a move. And not only he betrays the Savior, but he hands him over to the hands of sinners and wretched men. And now the disciples hear the words of Jesus here and they start to look at one another. Are you the one? All the Gospels actually saw a round table of, it is I, my master, it is I. Who would do such a wretched thing to our beloved teacher? But no matter the questions, they still remain perplexed, puzzled. Who is the culprit? How is it that something of this nature could happen under our watch? They wonder. Matthew 26 verse 22 tells us that they actually were exceedingly sorrowful. It's not just a shocking claim. The fact that one of those intimate disciples with which they have spent three years ministering together will be proven as a traitor. But it is sorrowful because they realize that their master is in trouble. In real trouble. He's about to die. All the warnings that Jesus had given finally are sinking in at the table. He had told them in Matthew 17, 22, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Chief priests, scribes, they will condemn him to death. They will deliver him to the Romans. Jesus had forewarned them clearly. And from that moment forward, they are in sorrow. Verse 23 continues with John. John is uh, leaning on the bosom of the breast of Christ. 
He often speaks in the third person. He doesn't want to be the spotlight. But he's the one that Jesus loved. He comments about himself. That sitting close to Jesus was a place of honor. And now Peter motions John to ask who this traitor is. So that Peter may stop this from happening. And so he asks to Jesus, who is it? And between this sadness and struggling, who is it? Jesus gives this answer in verse 26. The one who, I take this piece of bread and I dipped it and I give it to him. That's the sign of the betrayer. It's one of the twelve. It has to be in the room. It has to be one of us. By the way, dipping the bread, bread in the broth and then giving him to a person in your table was a sign of respect an honor and, 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 and a kind gesture of courtesy and esteem. And Judas received that courtesy from the Savior, but how does he repay such kindness? After this round table, Judas turns calm. He says, is it, is it I? He's probably convicted in his conscience. He knows he's the one. He asks, Master, is it I? And, he, and Jesus says, you have said it. And, and this is happening not so much that the disciples find out who is the betrayer, find out who is the culprit. Because in verse 28 and 29, they're still puzzled. They have no clue. They thought that Judas, again, was talking about something else. But this happens to fulfill Scripture. Psalm 41 verse 9 speaks of this and fulfills this in Jesus' moment at the table. Even my close friends, someone I trusted who shared my bread has turned against me. This aspect of dipping bread is the closest association and intimacy you can have with another person. It involves trust. It, it involves friendship. It involves loyalty. And what do you see instead? All that trust is exchanged with betrayal. C.S. Lewis has this to say. You will certainly carry out God's purposes. However, you act. But it makes a big difference to you whether you serve like Judas or like John. Friends, betrayals are to be factored in, even as followers of Christ. You imagine in this table moment where Jesus has pulled up the curtain for a second. There's a hard searching, is it me? I mean, what shall be said of people like Judas, who joined the church, even the inner circle, they come so close to tasting the, the work of the Spirit right before their eyes for years. They witness miracles, and all along they continue to live in sin. All along they continue to manipulate to get their view. To the point that Hebrews 6 speak of, of Judas, there's no hope for repentance. How dreadful must it be to be Judas? And we will never understand the whys of betrayal. betrayal. Evil doesn't need to make sense. None of the dimension of betrayal is, is the mindset of Judas, who goes to the chief priest, right? Who relies on the chief priest, renowned leaders. They must know better. And evil thrive when people just obey orders from superiors, and that justifies Judas in his mind to partake in the worst deception. There's only one person in that room who, with eyes on the ground, probably, probably pricked in his conscience, knows the answer to this question. It is I. He has no true trust on the Savior Judas. He has rationalized his old treachery. He's willing in unbelief to leave Jesus to the mercy of those who pay a nice price. There will always be an Esau ready to give up his birthright for a cup of lentils. 
or Judas, who betrays here true Christianity for a bit of money. He handed over Christ and other believers to the enemies. And by doing so, they are serving the forces of darkness. Friends, there may, may never be one like Judas among us, who, who has compromise in his heart, who has dark suspicion in the bosom, who knows that he has done everything against Christ. And the morsel comes to his mouth. May this melt away any unrepentance in you. May the, may the betraying of the message of Christ, may the betraying of the call to repent, that God knows everything, nothing can be hidden from his sight, and he commands us to turn away from sin now before sin destroys us like it destroyed Judas. And Jesus warns believers of this hatred, of these betrayals, that we will share in the same thing. Jesus in the gospel says that we must be aware of men. How, how they will deliver us to counsel and scourge us in the synagogue. It's okay for, to have persecution from without, but the synagogue is, is the persecution from within, is the betrayal from, from the church. There's a dimension of intimacy in this betrayal that makes this betrayal shattering, simply shattering. You hear stories of husbands and wives whenever there's a cheating a cheating on the spouse is heartbreaking. Why is it so heartbreaking? Because they're betraying the most intimate vow they can make in this life. On wedding day, you promise before God to lay down your life for your spouse. And in such a base way, you have broken the vow. The problem here is intimacy is what makes betrayal shattering. Simply shattering. Betrayals are only possible with those who know you deeply. Think of it. Judas, he was sitting among the, t the twelve at the very table as a friend, and yet he acted as the worst enemy. Thomas Goodwin has this to say about Judas. Judas heard all of Christ's sermon, and yet he betrayed Jesus. Jesus was not only betrayed by Judas, but he betrayed by the one who shared bread with him. See, when we sin in the church like this, we sin against God, against the whole community. Judas is almost a vessel in the hands of Satan. Satan loves to use Judas. He stood so close to the revelation of God, so close to the truth, and yet he does what he does. He becomes a servant and an instrument in the hands of the enemy. Satan can tell to Judas, thank you, Judas, for allowing me to quench the spirit. Thank you, Judas, to even so that I can be able to destroy the church. Even his betrayal, however, is not meaningless. It's part of the agony of Calvary, a greater purpose. Psalm 55 speaks of this, what Jesus must have felt here at the table. 55 verse 12 and 13. It is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could have bear it. Nor is the one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God. It is hard to recover from such betrayals. Scientists actually tells us that betrayals indeed have a psychological trauma in people's conscience. Wasn't that what uh, Ian Hamilton said in the documentary we watched in our last uh, movie night uh, about uh, the essential church. He said this, and I quote, The saddest thing about the killing times among the covenanters, which were believers in, in Scotland, is not that the government killed faithful Christians, though that's tragic, of course, but that they could be betrayed by their own. 
that's hard to take. Yet, friends, Jesus faced it. And he calls us to turn to him for understanding when we face betrayal. That Jesus went through it. He was not surprised by it. He even tolerated the presence of the betrayer, knowing what was coming. And he warns us to, as we might face such betrayals, the Bible speaks even in the family. Jesus coming to bring the sword, brother to brother, parent to children, and vice versa. That's the way in which be people will be betraying one another. And that is spoken even as something that will increase in the last days. Something that will be exceedingly an issue and that we need to be watchful for and not be surprised when it happened. But that, that also, that betrayal means the end of Judas. Look at verse 27. As soon as Judas takes bread, Satan enters Judas. Satan takes over his whole person. It's not that Satan was not at work in Judas' life before this moment, but now he takes possession completely, finally. Now the opportunity to renounce his treachery is over. Whatever he does next is fruit of being demon-possessed. And Jesus says, notice this. He says to him, what you do, do it quickly. It's almost pessimistic. Be quick about what you're doing. Hurry up. He gives him over to Satan, we could say. He encouraged him to be more swift, to abandon the scruples he had until that moment. Get on with this plot and leave us. This is your opportunity time. Verse 28 and 29, the disciples, they have no clue. Even with this clue from Jesus, they thought that Jesus was talk, uh, talking about the, the money box or giving money to the poor as the previous quarrel with the alabaster box was. But verse 30 now, right after the taking the, the bread, Judas cannot sit anymore among the table. And so he goes outside. He rushes away from the light to fulfill his crime. Perhaps he vomits the bread on the way and it was night. Verse 30 says, it was night. Which is more than an indication of time. It's, it's the night and darkness. Judas is entering the darkness of sin. And he is about to stumble and fall of an eternal judgment he leaves behind the light of salvation night is here the countdown has started the arrest the trial the crucifixion the death of christ it's showing that daytime is over night has come and he walks in darkness will stumble why was judas allowed this he needed to be so god must allow darkness a while before he destroys it and once Judas is, is being allowed his purpose, he will be gone. Someone said, cards on the table. Cain killed Abel. Caesar had Brutus. Even Jesus had Judas. Judas went from bad to worse. The love of money, remember that? He had this love of money that Sundays ago was, was, was the root of all this evil. He became so dedicated and now evil find complete home in him. And we must not trust the one who betrays. Jesus sends his goodbyes to Judas to protect actually the true sheep. Persons that flirt with covetousness until the point of no return. That's over. That's, that's the way the corruption doesn't stop. It is a progression or a regression into the abyss if you don't repent. That's how it looks like to be a backsliding professing Christian who does not know the Lord. And he becomes now the instrument of Satan in the church to accomplish great damage. And God says to him, go ahead, dive it into it full force, your eternal destruction. Can you imagine God giving this person over to his sin? 
That's what Paul says in Corinthians when he's speaking about a man immoral. He says, I, get, I handed him over to Satan. That is a dreadful place to be. We spoke of Saul in our evening service about this theme of when you yield to sin, it opens the way for Satan control into your life. A demonic influence that takes away your freedom to do anything. That you now are completely under the, the, the yoke of Satan. And the cross is a few hours away, remember? Satan must be at work the most when God is at work the most. When God is about to do something great, Satan will act. But again, woe to them and woe to Judas. He's in the dark. Darkness has taken over him. The Savior gives him up. He gives him permission. And the full force of his depravity now is at work. And he's abandoned to his own weakness. I mean, what worse judgment do you think anyone will face than Judas? Better not to be born than to face what he has to be facing. Possessed by Satan, hanged and destroyed for eternity in the deepest place of hell. And another one will take, another more worthy of him, Matthias, will take his place. Now, let's now look at the second parallel, verse 36 to 38. It's not just that an unbeliever like Judas betrays the Savior, but there's also the betrayal in a believer, in Peter. Peter has this telltale over the top, we could say, that unlike Judas, I must say, there's a big difference with Judas and Peter's. Peter loves the Savior. And he, he claims this commitment to the Savior right now. But despite his claim, he soon ends up betraying the Savior as well. He desires to die for Jesus. That's verse 36 to 37. Jesus had warned that he will depart. And now Simon, they're coming out of the upper room probably at this point. He says, where are you going? And the warnings had made Peter wonder for his master's safety now. He has a good concern, but he, that concern is not of real help. Jesus replies to him, you cannot follow me now. As we think of this dear sister Joyce, she was here with us a few weeks ago, our last fellowship meal, and now she's gone. We, we cannot follow her now. And death is something that Peter doesn't realize. And yet it's a reality that Jesus, his Savior, has to die. However, in this case, he cannot follow Jesus now because God, the, the Lord Jesus alone must first overcome death for Peter. It's like a parent who's trying to hold back his impatient child from following to a task that is too great and too dangerous for him. That is what Jesus is trying to do with Peter. Peter decides to die for Jesus, and indeed he will. He will be crucified upside down, but later, you shall follow me afterward. But you see, Jesus had to die first for the sin of Peter. Christ's prayer, by the way, is what allows Peter to actually repent. He says, I pray, Peter, for you, that your faith may not fail. That is what enabled Peter to repent. Which shows you that, however, we are morally unable to deny ourselves. We are morally unable to take up our cross and follow Jesus unless Christ does this first for us. Jesus will lay down his life for Peter before Peter can ever be able to do anything in the, at the end of this gospel. Jesus has to make a way through paying for your sin. Bear in mind, therefore, your work, your sacrificial acts, your, your, your lip service, even martyrdom will amount to nothing without first Christ dying for you. Without first instilling the love of Christ in your heart. 
Mark David compares this to a guy that jumps over the cliff above another guy who is simply uh, chilling out. And he says, I'm going to die for you. And he, he ends up in the, in, the, in the ocean. That makes no sense. Peter stubbornly doesn't realize this reality. In fact, Jesus replies to him because he says, I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus, my life for your life. This is his commitment. Like elsewhere, he's overconfident. But this claim will be proven flat wrong, just like a balloon of air that explodes. Under the pressure, Peter will not even risk being associated with Jesus, let alone die for Jesus. That is the, the claim that he has a great courage with his words, but he will be proven a coward few hours away. But thankfully for Peter, failure is just a detour. It's not a, the dead end that was for Judas. It's, it, there is a case in point even for believers here. That betrayal is not something an unbeliever does toward Jesus. But even believers, they have an ignorance or an overestimation of their ability. Even in Peter as a believer. Do we really know, friends, how weak we are? How, hard, how depraved our heart is? We, are, we may be overconfident and then fall. It is dangerous for us to have no clue of our weakness, especially as you enter into an hour of trial, just like Peter was doing here. The intentions are good. The affections are genuine. But all of that is still out of place for Peter. He's not ready. He doesn't understand what Jesus is about to do. And worst of all, he's unaware of his own inner weakness. He, he doesn't realize the failure that awaits him. Friends, the one who stands must take heed lest he fall. That pride, self-confidence is what drove Peter as a believer to do what he did. He sought to take charge and prevent Jesus from dying several times. He pretended loyalty, but that loyalty is not backed up by facts. The big scene of pride in Peter comes before the fall. However, there's a difference with Judas that unlike Judas, who could care less, Peter still loves the Savior. But he's overconfident about his devotion. And we, like Peter, can at times overestimate our dedication and end up betraying, going back to our promises. However, there's a good news for us, friends, that Christ will never betray us. That ultimately, other may fail us, but God never will. Think about it. Christ faithfully underwent betrayals from both friends and foes. He dies on the cross to actually pay for our betrayals. The those of Peter, not of Judas. You fail the master. You grieve over that. You realize that your grief, your genuinely sorrow toward God. That is what Peter is. That is not Judas. You have contrition of sin. You have desire to honor the Savior. Even in your betrayals. And you abandon that. And you look for the Savior. Then, friends, that is a proof that you are a believer. Don't think yourself as a Judas unforgivable for a sin that happened. But like Peter, you can receive mercy for your tears of repentance. If you embrace the promise of salvation, friend, by faith, the promise of the salvation will never betray you. Even if you betray him. Because if we are faithless, he remain faithful because he cannot deny himself the denial of peter is here in verse 38 jesus asked peter with his illusion will you lay down your life for me peter 
Earlier they were unwilling to wash the feet of each other, let alone dying for each other. That's the measure of his words, not backed up by fact. Let me tell you, Peter, let me prepare you for your downfall. Most assuredly, this is the second moment of truth. The first moment of truth, most assuredly, is Judas. Now, this is the second betrayal, Peter. The rooster shall not crow before you have denied me three times. Your bravery behind your words will not last, Peter, before the morning light. Before this night is over, you already will claim three times in a row that you did not know me. Pressured by the crowd at the trial, you will swear that you have nothing to do with me, Peter. And right after, there's that inquisitive look of the Savior. In the midst of that chaotic scene that catches Peter. He hears the rooster, he remembers, he weeps. He spends the next three days in depression in his upper room. He who was supposed to be the rock shrank and his master is gone. Now you think it could be over for Peter. But as we'll see at the end of the gospel, it is not. Peter is reestablished. Why? Because of this crucial difference between Peter and Judas. The one who faces his own failures is still steadily advancing on the pilgrim's way. So don't miss this. The difference between the true betrayal is this. The one of Judas and the one of Peter is that one displays repentance and that is Peter. And he displays repentance not because of his own strength, but because of Christ interceding for him. I have prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. The other one regrets Judas. Peter has godly sorrows. Judas has worldly grief. 2 Corinthians 7.20 says, Godly sorrows works repentance to salvation without regret. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Judas was never born again. Judas was never saved. He was never made internally clean. And although for three years, yes, he was a member of the twelve. His sin was later found out. The difference couldn't be greater. You see, Peter finds forgiveness and restoration through repentance. But the other ones find regret. Judas, he's rejected. He hopelessly doesn't ask for pardon to God, but in his despair, he's led to suicide. His body is scattered in a field of blood, and then there is an eternal judgment in hell for Judas. No hope of salvation. Judas understood well that he was betraying the innocent blood of the Son of God. Anytime anyone persecutes believers, he's betraying that same blood of the Son of God. But there's also, although Judas was remorseful, yes, I'm sad I screwed up, he found no place in repentance. He's not going like Peter, I sinned against you, God. I detest this sin. I turn away from it. I love Jesus. How could I do this to my Savior? Please forgive me, God. And after at the end of this gospel, the Savior asked him, do you love me, Peter? Yes, I do. You know I do love, love you. I want to spend my life for you. So we must keep in mind that behind Judah's action is, is the behavior of Israel that betrays their king to the Romans, the tribe of Judah's. So what do we make of this betrayal's friends this morning? That when a lie is spoken, a false reality is constructed. And once the reality is discovered, it really 
brings a breaking in the relationships, doesn't it? Just like in our text. Think about Bill Clinton. The inner circle believed this lie that he hadn't had sex with Monica Lewinsky. And so the inner circle of uh, Bill Clinton accepted an unreal reality. But the eventual discovery of the truth and the resulting feelings of betrayals became very dramatic than those who hadn't believed Clinton in the first place. That is the power to affect one another. And that is a serious business, friends, in the church, that our spoken words shape the reality of the people we interact. Uh, we think of Christmas, everyone becomes good. But this text this morning proves us the opposite. That there's something incredibly depraved in our human nature. That pure evil exists. Even if not, in greater measure, wherever God is at work. Someone once said that wherever God has a church, Satan has a chapel. That Satan will be at work to seek to destroy. And the nature of pure evil is something that we need to wrestle with. An evil that, in fact, as we look at what's happening after October 7th, we thought, you know, the Nazi, the World War II, oh, that, that was in the past. No, friends, evil exist and judas pure evil still exists that the parallel stories of today judas and peter shows us that it's almost like a crime or a spy story or a mafia game around the table and what may make however the passion of christ doubly sorrowful is the circumstance of betrayal in which it took place that jesus was betrayed by his most intimate followers May this will never be among us, that we'll never have a Judas, a minister of Satan, who works in the dark against the faithful only to stumble and fall eternally uh, under the same darkness. And so, friends, let's take the warning from our text. Those who to stand, take heed lest they fall. That what goes around comes around. Choices, prices will be paid for betrayal. A few chapters from now, we find not only Judas betraying the Savior with a kiss, and what a deceitful and wretched pretense it is to betray someone with a kiss. But even Peter, even Peter, even the believers will be scattered. They will be afraid. They will be fleeing naked and powerless from the crime scene, camouflaging themselves for fear of repercussions. Why? Because, friends, Jesus had to go to the cross alone. Ultimately, he has to be betrayed to pay for our betrayal. Even a true believer like Peter could not stomach this. He sought to prevent it. He sought to pretend it to be able not only to, to die for the Savior, but then he f falls flat on the ground when the moment to say the truth and stand came. He falls. Friends, let us not be overconfident either. Let us be watchful against betrayer, but even against ourselves, our own hearts. From repenting from betraying, lest like Judas, we find no place in repentance and perish eternally. Our greatest enemies, friends, is not out there. Our greatest enemies is ourself. This story, however, is not just about Judas betraying Jesus. I want to say it's almost a parable of the way the world always goes after the faithful. The way the false Christianity, you think about it, in our day and age, false Christianity has traded the truth for few more money. And so they start to preach a different gospel. They start to go after the faithful. There are many ways in which our contemporary church in this age of apostasy 
whether it's for love of praises from the world, love of money or social status, we are selling our birthright like Judas, making a pact actually with the devil. And the church suffers. The sheep are scattered because of that. And so I want to say in the face of all these betrayals, it's easy to get shocked. It's easy to get fearful. But friends, there is a good news for us. And that good news remains unshakable. That Jesus' cross, it's working over and above Judas.